0: please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Bronnie Ware. Bronnie is an author, songwriter, and motivational speaker best known for her writings about the deathbed regrets shared with her during her time as a palliative care worker. These writings were expanded into a book, which has now been translated into 27 languages and is called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. In this conversation, Bronnie shares with us these top five regrets and how, at the core, it really comes down to living a life with tremendous courage. Here's my conversation with Bronnie Ware. Bronnie, to begin with, you're incredibly well-known for writing a blog post that then became a book called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And to start our conversation, I'd love to know what led up to you writing that now famous blog post? Uh,
1: I'd just finished working with Dying People, and I'd set up a songwriting program in a women's uh, women's jail and uh, an editor of the magazine said to me why don't you write an article for the magazine and tell us how that all came about about teaching the songwriting in a jail so that was what followed on from looking after dying people and so I wrote the article handwritten with just a pen and a piece of chai beside, uh, uh, a cup of chai beside me and And as I finished the article, I thought, why aren't I writing more? I I love writing. And at the time, I was trying to break through into the singer-songwriter world and loving songwriting but really not enjoying performing and the pub scene and that, that sort of world at all. And so I thought, okay, I'll start a blog. And so I created a blog called Inspiration and Chai And then I thought what do I write about? I was sitting outside on the veranda and I was watching the birds and I thought What do I write about? And as clear as day my guidance just said write what you know And so I thought okay well I've just finished working with dying people for the last eight just over eight years I'll write about that and I just it was the regrets that had the most profound effect on me personally so I just sat down and and wrote the article with really no forethought at all. I had written in a journal often while I was sitting beside the bedsides of dying people and just as I was untangling my own life and thoughts. And, yeah, so I just sat down and and wrote the top five requests of the dying because it had been shaping my life so strongly for the previous eight years that, yeah, I, I just... Wrote that, put it up, and then I just kept writing the blog and it didn't really take off for about six or yeah six or eight months after that yeah and and I'm glad it didn't because i wasn't quite ready for it then, so I was more ready for it when it did
0: mm-hmm.
1: did gain its traction
0: you know it's interesting to me that really the top five regrets are anecdotal. They're from your experience. It's not that there's science behind this or research. And yet it had such a resonance and has such a resonance with so many people. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not academic research. And I mean, I've been called a a nurse and a doctor and a researcher and all those things. But but that's you know that's not the case and I've been honest about that from the start it was based on my own experience and I've had a lot of people in palliative care write to me over the years and said that is so spot on with what I found with my patients as well so perhaps it had to be that personal nature for people to resonate with it so much and also I'm not sure the actual dying people would have been as vulnerable and safe to be vulnerable, had it been, had they been academic uh, questions and researchers asking them, um, doing the research. Instead, they were just conversations. I, I had no idea I was ever going to share them so widely. It was just. Stuff that was changing my life. So yeah, it was I think it was the personal nature of it, Tammy. When you were
0: working during those eight years, did you ask the dying people you were working with, do you have any regrets? What are your regrets, or did this just emerge from the conversations?
1: It just emerged. It always just emerged. Um, the only questions I asked were if the subject was already brought up, and then as as a friend and as as a listener, I would then ask questions that would allow the person to to open up more and and have that release. So no, it was never it was never a conscious intention. But what happened was there were so many familiar conversations that started of their own accord about regrets that I started paying attention, thinking, "Hang on, I've I've had this conversation before." Or, "Okay, here we go again. Here we go. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Now." Our listeners, I'm sure, are like, could you just please tell me what the five regrets are? Because I want to make sure I don't have them. So let's get right into it. Yes. If you can introduce each one, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. And I want to know how you changed your life so that you don't have this regret. But let's go ahead and introduce the first one.
1: Sure. Um, The the most um, common regret was people wishing that they'd lived a life true to themselves, not a life that other people had expected of them.
0: Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And what changes, if any, did you have to make in your life so that that wouldn't be your regret at the end of your life? You you talk about it as regret-free living. So what have you had to do so that you're living a life true to yourself?
1: Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I've changed my whole self completely. Um, All of the regrets really came down to a lack of courage. And so having witnessed the anguish of regrets and witnessed death and realised, uh, realizing the sacredness of our time, I've been able to live a life true to myself now. And that meant letting go of doing jobs that didn't suit me because I thought that was what I had to do. Um, it meant breaking through a lot of old family dynamics and healing that and Stepping out on stage when I really didn't want to do that, but I had a message to share. And, um, oh my goodness, it shapes, it still shapes me every single day because I know that I've been bestowed this incredible um, lesson and that I've also witnessed the anguish of regret repeatedly. And so with that, it... it Every every decision I make, whether consciously or unconsciously, in the background, there's always, okay, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret it or I'm not. Which way am I going to go? I'm going to go the way that, that causes the least regret, even if it's the scariest way or the most challenging way. I just cannot lie to myself now. So, um, yeah, I've, I've been blessed hugely in that regard.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you said a very, very powerful statement that I wrote down and that I'm going to keep with me. All of our regrets come from a lack of courage, that that's really the root of all of the top regrets people have at the end of their life. That's big, a lack of courage. It's as simple
1: and as difficult as that, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, because so much of... Everyone's lives initially until they, they make that choice to start the healing and truly honour the life that they're called to live, that we're all called to live, is shaped by courage or is shaped by fear because so much of it is about what other people, how we're going to look in front of other people or how we're going to be judged or assumptions people are going to make because if you're willing to live a life true to yourself at some point, you're going to be considered a fool by some people and you're going to most likely cop some ridicule and criticism. And so it does take courage to step out and say, well, you know, I really don't care anymore what you think because my heart is telling me to go this way and I'm really, really scared because I don't know where it's leading me to, but I'm going to find the courage and do that because I am not going to have regrets.
0: It's very powerful. I mean, I can see why your articulation of these top 5 regrets has been such a viral phenomenon. Now, the second regret that you list is I wish I hadn't worked so hard. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have to really ponder this one. So, really, this is what people say at the even if when they have jobs that they love and jobs that are creative, I wish I hadn't worked so hard.
1: Absolutely, in my experience, absolutely. And it, it wasn't about not loving the work they did. That was, it was wonderful when I came across people like that. I love the work I do too, but it was about not making work the whole thing. Because once people didn't work, they had no sense of identity outside of their work, and it was it was so painful for some people. Because, uh, for example, there was there was one family I, I was looking after, an elderly gentleman. He'd worked. I was looking after him when he was in his 90s, and he'd worked up until about a year earlier. And he had so much that he wanted to say to his family, but they didn't have the communication channel for him to share it because he had just worked so hard and made work his whole life that when it came down to wanting to heal other aspects of uh, heal aspects of himself, he just didn't know how to function outside of his work identity. And a lot of people realize that they've given too much time to work and not because of passion and, and because they loved it, but not actually allocated enough time and focus on other areas of their life, which would have supported their work and which would have supported their their heart and their healing in other ways.
0: You know, Bronnie, I'm going to have to end this podcast conversation and go out on a long walk. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, this is a part of my work, but I'm just I'm just joking with you. But, you know, it's a a powerful teaching especially for people who are achievement oriented. What what you're saying here that on our deathbed, this is what we may reflect upon. Very powerful.
1: Yeah, we well it's it's quite likely we will and Like I say, Tammy, it's not about not liking your work. But what I've found, because I could get caught up in that myself, especially when I'm in full-on passion mode with my work, that if I do step back and create some space um, of unplanned space or focus on other areas of my life, my work benefits enormously anyway. And it's almost like you give your work a shortcut because, Instead of having to know every step of the way in your work, if you give attention to, to other areas, life then supports you by giving you shortcuts in your work anyway. Yeah, in my experience.
0: You're speaking my language by bringing up shortcuts. I really like that. Okay, the third top regret that you identify is I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings.
1: Yeah, because a lot of people are too scared how their vulnerability and honesty will be received. And that was something that in the end they just wished. They wished that people had come to know them on a different level, but their loved ones couldn't know them on that level because they'd never found the courage to express their feelings.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm curious, here you are, you're functioning as a palliative care worker at the bedside of dying people, how was it that people shared so much of their true heart with you? What do you think it was about the way you approached conversations with people that had them share so much? Uh,
1: I think think it was because I was a listener, and I found that mastering the skill of listening is like a secret ingredient to living a a great life and I grew up in in a family where um, my dad was you couldn't get a word in dad it was dad's way or no way and so I became a listener I used to I just found it was the most peaceful path as a child to to not try to say too much and just listen and I think that that just became a part of part of my essence. And on top of that, though, I mean, I was sitting beside these people's beds for 12-hour shifts, six days a week. And that's that's pretty intimate and personal. And I was working from 8am in the morning till 8pm, initially five days a week. And then as they became closer to the end, it almost always happened that they would want their main carer there as often as possible. And so... I would work the six, 12-hour shifts and then take time off after they'd passed. So the family would come in and out, the doctors would come in and out. This is in in people's homes. These were people who had the money to afford private care. And uh, so the doctors would come and go, the the nurses would come and go, and I was there, and and then it would just be us again. And so I think it was just the personal nature of the situation Mm -hmm. as well as the fact that I loved hearing people's stories, and so I must have asked the right questions.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, when I hear this third regret, I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I imagine people wishing they had the courage to share how much they loved certain people, maybe people from their past or... Uh, ex-partners or ex-this or that or whatever, people in their life currently, I wish I had the courage to share the love. But also, probably some of their feelings were difficult feelings, feelings of anger and feelings of disappointment. Is that all wrapped up in this regret? I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings.
1: Yeah, you're, you're exactly right, Tammy. Yes. Yes, it was. It was the frustration of being too scared to share the depth of their love to people like you've just mentioned, families, ex-partners, friends, whoever. But it was also wishing that they'd had the courage to speak up in their own self-love, in their own defence, and not allowed, not given their power away to to others. And that was that that caused them some massive anguish in some people that that they'd never expressed how how they truly felt in a way that would have empowered them, even though the people receiving it would not have enjoyed it, enjoyed Mm -hmm. hearing it.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about that, because I think sometimes people don't say things because, for all kinds of reasons, but, you know, well, I don't think the person will really change anyway, what's the point? You know, I don't know if they would be receptive or, you know, it won't do any good, basically, so why should I bother?
1: well i was that way myself so <laughs> um i was definitely that way myself i just didn't see the point because i saw a lot of dynamics in my life exactly that like why why bother it's never going to sink in anyway but having witnessed that uh, that genuine anguish about not having had that release i was determined to try it, to do it you know to heal and it took so much painful healing and courage for me to personally open up and express my feelings and whether I was going to be heard or not in the end became irrelevant. It was more about me having the courage to be honest with myself about the feelings that needed releasing and so we can't control how others are going to receive what we say and it may not make a difference with them. but. What I have found is that life is the best teacher. So it's not up to us to say how they are to receive what we're going to share. We can hope that it'll get through and the relationship will receive healing, which is what eventually happened for me. But what what's more important is that you have lived in a way where you have had the courage to express all of who you truly are. And there's ways to express it in kindness, even if it's frustration and anger, it doesn't necessarily have to be an attack on the other person. It can just be how you're feeling, like how their their words or their treatment of you have left you feeling. So it's not necessarily like you're you know, you're an awful person. You did this, you did that. I mean that may come out, but it it's more like I was left feeling broken because of this or I felt this or and I just found that once the lid was lifted and I started having the courage to share that it created so much beautiful loving space within me that it was worth anything any effort I'd put in and I so I feel that that's the same for everyone if we can dare to to do it for our own healing not not to prove someone right or wrong I mean you know we're all here to dissolve our ego we don't have to we don't have to make someone wrong just to make ourselves heard. And so if we express our feelings, do it for ourselves, not not to put the other person in any position. They'll, life will sort them out. Like, you know, life's a pretty good teacher. So, yeah, in my experience, we have to express our feelings for our own healing.
0: Can you share with me the personal example that you were alluding to but not giving us a lot of detail about?
1: yeah sure sure okay um there's, there's a few, but the most powerful is is my relationship with my dad, with my father um, He was a really broken person, a raging, angry alcoholic, but also incredibly remorseful afterwards, and there was a really sensitive, sweet man beneath his brokenness, but it, there was no you know no way for that to come out of him because he he just Yeah, he was so scared of change and losing control and everything like that. And so I was the one who was most like him of all his children in the sense that I was the creative one, I was the sensitive one. Uh, I was the one who wanted to travel. We, we had a lot, a lot in common, even though I didn't realize this until probably my thirties or forties. And, uh, and, In the end, I like dad would explode at me, and this even went on into my early adulthood when I go back to visit. And I'm really close to my mum, so I would always go back to visit a lot. And um, even though I didn't live in the same town as them, and uh, but whenever I go back to visit, it was always like walking on eggshells because dad was so reactive and. It didn't matter what you did. He'd find a reason to roll his eyes or huff or, you know, ultimately explode at some stage. And I just got sick of it. I just got so sick of it. So I, and I was healing. I was trying to to fix all this pain. And he was also very cruel. He'd also said a lot, like very critical and very, very cruel to me in his verbal abuse. And so I started speaking up in, in, in response and you couldn't really get a word in because he would just speak over you and there there was no chance to be heard. So I started writing. I wrote to him a few times and it really didn't make much difference. He just sort of bagged me, you know, criticized me even more to the family. Oh, what's she up to now? And, but I felt it was the only way he would really hear me. And Over time, I only wrote to him two or three times and I exploded to him probably four or five times, like reacted really hugely in his own language. And over time, he did mellow and a whole new level of respect came. It took a good few years, but a whole new level of, of respect came into our relationship. And by the time he died, we had a beautiful, quite a beautiful relationship. He loved me as much as he was able to love anyone and he received my love as much as he was able to receive it. And for that, I'm hugely grateful. And it only came about because I was willing to shift the family dynamics and speak up in my own defense and say, Nah, no, nah, okay, enough of this. This is not true. This is your stuff. This is not about me. I'm not going to take this on anymore. You can say it as often as you like, but I'm not going to believe that anymore, and I'm not going to give you that power. And I used a lot of compassion in this as well. I really brought a lot of compassion into my my meditations around our relationship. And yeah, by the time by the time he died, I mean he he read my book Five Regrets. I think about oh gosh, four or five years after I maybe four years after it came out, he'd heard all about it, and but he. he didn't like reading books by female authors. And uh, and so he ended up reading my book right at the, towards the end. And all he said to me was, Oh, well, it was interesting, love. Yeah, it was interesting. But he also then told all his friends, You should read this book, Bronnie's written. She's done so much more in her life. Like he was really proud, but he couldn't express himself. So all he said to me was, Oh, it was interesting, love. You know, it was <laughs> like, I don't, that's the best he could do. So. Mm-hmm. I was blessed with that Tammy, because I had had the courage to express myself and to try and do it in the most most loving way. And so when he died, I have absolutely no regrets about our relationship because I gave it my best shot.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, interesting to me that you wrote down your feelings as a way of sharing them as well as just blurting them out. I wonder if you think that has particular, both healing power and potentially efficacy.
1: Both, yes, yes. Because people, just because we're ready to express, like we've, say we've done the work and we've reached a point where we know what we want to say and perhaps we're, we're even confident of articulating it well even if we're feeling vulnerable and scared to say it all and that, even that's rare to get to that point where you're that confident to articulate it and get everything said you want. There's absolutely no guarantee or likelihood that the person receiving your expression has reached that same level of readiness. I mean, for those two aspects to line up exactly right is is rare. And so when we expect other people to hear us and receive what we're saying on the same level as we're trying to express it, it, it may be asking a little bit too much from them. And also for me in being able to write it, and I think for anyone in writing it, you get clarity, you you get because you, you don't want to just blah, 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 you know, and just write and write and write. You want to get concise and say, and, and so it helps you get very clear on what is the most important thing. That what's the most important message that you're trying to express, and then of course it gives the the reader, the listener, the time to reflect on it more than once because they don't just hear it in an out a verbal outburst. They they instead they get to read it in. They might read it first and think, oh, that's a load of nonsense. But then they have the opportunity to come back and read it again and again and ponder it in a more peaceful place when they're, they're in the right space to do that.
0: Bronnie, I'm going to have a confessional moment here. It'll be brief. But my mother passed away recently, and I have a regret that there are certain things that I didn't say, certain ways I didn't express my feelings because I didn't want to upset her I didn't think anything would change and I wonder what you think even about writing it all down even though she's not here to read the letter
1: oh absolutely just just write it down write it down for your own benefit and because you know we're all love so she's going to receive going to receive the loving intention behind what you're saying even if you think it's stuff she wouldn't have liked to hear she was your mother so she's you know, a mother still wants their child to be at peace and to be happy. And so on a human level, she may not have agreed with what you wanted to, want to share with her. But on a soul level, she'll probably be so proud and grateful to you for having the courage to express it all because she chose to be your mom in that lifetime. So on some level, all she wants is, is for you to be peaceful and happy.
0: Mm, Thank you. Okay, and I also want to circle back to something because I'm still struck by your comment that all of the regrets come to a lack of courage. And with the first regret, not living a life true to yourself, it's pretty obvious that it's a lack of courage. And here it's wishing I'd had the courage to express my feelings. Where's the courage when it comes to the second regret that we touched on? I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Why does it take courage to take time off of work or to just you know, not be a super high achieving worker human.
1: Um, two two reasons. One is is about the identity that's wrapped up in work that we whether whether we're actually aware of it or not. Our our identity for work does empower us, or um, or does shape how we think other people are going to perceive us. So if for example you're a doctor and you want to uh, I don't know do a job that doesn't have the same esteem as a doctor then it's going to take courage because people are going to say but you're a doctor you know and for goodness sake you're you're a doctor and you're choosing to go and I don't know build fences what's, what's that about and so I was a banker. I was an ex-banker and I went and washed dishes on a tropical island. So that was my job when I left my banking career, my first job. And it did take courage because people were saying, you, that's ridiculous. You've got a good career. You've, you know, you're earning decent money. You've got a brain. You know, why, would you, why would you give this up? We're in a recession. Why would you give it up? So there's that aspect of it that our around our identity, and particularly if we've been in that role for a long time, it also means that we can let we may lose a lot of our our peers and our our relationship network because a lot of that is often tied up with work. But the other aspect of courage is the money, the money side of it, because often people are working too hard because they're scared that if they don't, then they they're not going to have as much money and theoretically that that can be true if you earn if you work 80, 80 hours a week on $20 an hour then you're going to earn a lot more than if you work 40 hours a week on $20 an hour but in my experience the more you again it comes back to the shortcuts the more courage you find to step away and say this is this this is disempowering me this this work I need to focus on what brings me joy. I'm going to be, and this is where the courage comes in, I'm going to find the courage and trust and let go and surrender and say, I don't know the answer here, but I know what's not working. So I need to find work that is going to work and is aligned with my heart. So I'm really scared, but I'm going to find the courage to not work so hard and to allow life, to
0: actually bless me in ways that I have no idea of yet. Mm-hmm. Bronnie, I am so enjoying this conversation and learning from it. Thank you so much. Really getting I'm a lot out of it. i too. Thank All right. you. Okay, Thank you. the fourth of the top five regrets. It's almost like one of those things where you know, have a countdown to the favorite song, but it's a little different. <laughs> <But> exactly. Okay. <laughs> I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. Interesting that okay. this came up. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, this is, this is for people. This is before the internet really kicked in, and this is for, from a generation uh, that didn't, didn't have the internet. But it's still relevant in the sense of, you know, that the relationships were about. Um, how this worked, Tammy, is that people were wanting to reflect and reminisce on the beautiful and fun aspects of their life so people who are dying want to live for as long as possible and oftentimes the family which were often adult children the families were already going into a place of grief while the person was still alive and they were still trying to make them as comfortable and happy but but say it was it was a, a mother dying, she could already see the pain her children were in. But from a an individual perspective, stepping out of the mother role, she still wanted to you know, embrace any aspects of her life, any clarity she had in between pain and painkillers, as much as she could. And that's where friends really came into it, because even though friends were also grieving and um had their own pain, there was just such a different dynamic where friends could reminisce about the good old days in a way that family couldn't. And, and it brought a lot of mischief and laughter and just a whole different angle of love to the dying person's final weeks because the family, you know, the family often didn't know all of the stories that the friends knew and so they had a lot of them had lost touch, and when they got to that point of dying, they were thinking, "Why on earth didn't I, didn't I stay in touch with these people?" And I, you know, I, I tried my best to, to, fix that a few times, and sometimes had success, but, but not always. And this still applies even with social media. You know, we we don't lose touch so much, but we're not as inclined to have one-on-one, uh, personal in real life. Conversations anymore, and they, you know, they are what we need at the end. They are what we need all the way through. To be honest, but it's 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 the lack of um, contact bringing everyone together. And and again, the courage came into that because sometimes people were feeling stupid to want to reach out to other people. I, I remember one old guy saying, "Oh no, no, he'd, he'd think I was a sentimental old fool if I wanted to track him down now." And it's like, well, but you're dying and I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. And in that case, that gentleman didn't actually have the courage to track, track his old mate down.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, before we get to the last of the top five regrets, you wrote, a blog post more recently called The Five Things I've Learned Since Writing About the Five Top Regrets. And I thought, Bronnie really knows how to rock this list of five structure. But anyway, (laughs) uh, one of the things that you wrote of The Top Five Things You've Learned Since Writing, The Top Five Regrets, is that it's Mm real-life connections that are the essence of joy. And in a way, I think you're pointing to that with this staying in touch with our friends and saying it's really throughout our life, that these real-life connections are where we find our joy and that we need to prioritize them.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, you know, it's so lovely. Social media can be so lovely, or the Internet, um, so lovely in the terms of reaching out and finding friends and saying a quick hello or a text message is, is hello. But... Even our conversation now, I mean, we're we're on the other side of the world. But if you had have sent me questions and I had have replied, it wouldn't have the flavor that that we have in a real-life conversation. And so the more we can hold on to the old world or return to the old world and have real-life catch-ups with our friends, the richer our life will be. And I know we're all busy and there's so many demands on our time. But I prioritize that these days. I, well, I, I never really let go of it because I've learned, the hard, or learned through other people's hard lessons. That those real life, um, the time spent in real life connection, it, it truly is the essence of joy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's,
0: it's almost like these reminders in a way they're cliche. And yet I feel like I benefit from them. It's interesting. I benefit from having them be put right in front of me.
1: Mm. Well, they they probably are cliched, but then cliches are often, you know, they've got a common denominator that a lot of people relate to them.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. The last of the five regrets. I wish I had let myself be happier. And I think this is really interesting. Let myself be happier. So tell me what you discovered in talking to people on their deathbed about letting themselves be happier.
1: Well, they hadn't realized that, uh, that happiness was a choice. And that's not denying that they're suffering and learning and pretending to be happy every minute of the day. That's, that's unrealistic. We're, we're here to be, to be stretched and, and to grow and, and to return to our, our wholeness. But a lot of people realized that they had allowed the opinions of others to stop them from having joy and hadn't and had focused on that rather than focusing on the beautiful things about themselves or the blessings in life or those incredible small magnificent moments in between that actually make you bring bring you happiness in between all of the other challenges so they had realized they'd they'd stuck to to old patterns and Um, and just owned the identity that other people had dumped upon them, and that being that they weren't worthy of happiness.
0: You know, in listening to you describe the top five regrets, I can see how important and valuable it is to have that perspective of, it's like I'm on my deathbed, and I'm looking back at my life. But I'm not, so I get the chance now to live differently. What are your suggestions for how people can keep a type of deathbed awareness with them at whatever point they are in their life, at whatever age,
1: and in whatever health? I I think um, the easiest and the hardest all in one is to realize that you're going to die. To face the fact that you, you are going to die and... It's the easiest in the sense that, okay, it's a pretty simple truth, you're going to die. It's the hardest because no one wants to talk about it or face it until they really have to. But if as a society and as individuals, if we can speak more about death or even just contemplate it on a private individual level, then you realize that, okay, I am going to die. This isn't a practice run, regardless of what you believe in the afterlife. This life I'm in mean now is the only life I'm going to be living as this person. I don't actually have forever. I, this this one day, I'll get around to it one day thing, it's never going to happen if I don't find the courage now. So by facing death and realizing that your time is sacred, then that gives you the courage because you think, okay, well, if I'm going to die in a year, what that person thinks of me if I if I change direction in my career is so irrelevant to how my heart is going to feel because I've at least given it a go and so I think that we have to use death as a tool for living. I find it as one of the most incredible tools for living to realize the sacredness of our time because you know it's, it's an ever decreasing resource and we may not have time to do every single thing we want But the biggest gift we can give to ourselves is to enjoy our life as fully as possible. And that means to be as courageous in honoring our own heart as possible. Mm -hmm. And of course, that benefits the whole world anyway.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, Bronnie, in preparing for this conversation, I learned that after you wrote the top five regrets of the dying, you developed a very painful autoimmune disease and I wanted to talk to you about that and how that experience changed you and how you were able to bring the insights from this writing project to facing that kind of really difficult chronic pain and suffering.
1: Well, by the time that this all came around, uh, I had an immense trust in life (laughs) Uh, in the sense that I deeply believed and still do that our lessons are given to us from a place of love. And so I tried, I I wasn't always able, but I tried to hold on to that theory through the worst worst times. So at the same time, I was very blessed to conceive naturally and quickly at 44. I became a first-time mom at 45 had a very healthy pregnancy. And in the same 24 hours as my daughter was born, my book took off and it had been rejected by 25 publishers and then all of a sudden, boom, it took off. So I had this major birthing happening of, of a baby, my, my book, um, Reaching the World Properly, and at the same time, rheumatoid arthritis arrived in my life. And so it all happened at the same time. Within a couple of weeks of having the baby, the the pain kicked in and it was triggered by the pregnancy, and but again, it was a healing and and all of them. I've never known any of them without without the other. So it was horrific, and I'm not going to blaze over that in the sense that the level of pain that the body is capable of without dying is is just unfathomable, really, because it's you just cannot believe that the body can contain so much pain and not, not be dying. And so obviously I had a lot of tears and a lot of choices. of uh, you know I had to bring a, so much consciousness into this healing. But it, now that I'm seven years along, I, have, I am so grateful to have, have, ha- have this disease because it has taught me gentleness. It has taught me space. It has healed me in ways that nothing, nothing ever could have. And I deeply believe that, as awful as it can be, as painful as it can be, whatever lessons we are given are absolutely perfect for who we are and for bringing us into our best self. And that they are given to us from an incredibly deep place of love, because. Sometimes the lesson has the lesson is perfect for who we are, and I couldn't have become as loving to myself, as grounded in myself, um, as courageous to leave the amount of space in my life as I do, had I not had this disease. And so yeah, I you know I've learnt the biggest lesson through all of it is to learn to surrender, have the courage to surrender and to trust in the lesson. And again, the five regrets helped me with that, Tammy, because I had already let go of what people think of me because I had the death element and the sacredness of time already in my thinking. And so I already started letting go of what people think of me. That empowered me as I went through this because you know, obviously I have a best-selling book and yet I'm not huge on social media, I'm not huge on... You know, I haven't milked it in the way that it could have been milked because I was committed to my own healing and to being present for my own life rather than living the life expected of me and just running with every single opportunity five regrets gave me. Instead, I just thought, no, okay, I'm being given a bigger gift here, and that is to return to, to such a place of love within my own heart.
0: Are you still in pain from the rheumatoid arthritis?
1: Oh, I'd probably say two out of ten. You know, they, they always scale it. Um, I I swim six mornings a week. I ride my push bike on good days. Um, I had a couple of years where I was completely off medi- medication and everything. I went to India and um, did some major healing through the Ayurvedic path. And then about a year ago, uh, it came back overnight, or almost overnight, where I went from jumping on the trampoline to not being able to walk more than two steps without having to lean on the wall to to breathe through the pain. And so I just, again, trusted. And it was, you know, I went right back almost to where I'd, I'd been, but it hasn't taken me as long to get back. And now I'm fitter and stronger than I've been in seven years. So, you know, I do have pain if I push myself too hard, but I don't generally have much pain in before, even if I was just sitting down, I would always have some level of pain, whereas I'm sitting here chatting to you now and I don't feel. Uh, I have to. I have to search for the pain. There's a little bit of pain in in one of my feet at the moment, maybe mm. a one out of ten. But even then, I had to search for it. So, most of the time, as long as I go gently, um, I'm I'm doing really well. But I I lo- I know what my limits are now, and if I push myself too hard, certainly I still live in pain.
0: You know, I'm. Moved and inspired by your story, by you sharing that it was, you know, horrifically painful, but that you had this underlying, overriding, powerful trust in life through it. And yet, I want to address that person who says, you know, yeah, life is the teacher, love is the lesson, I'm hearing this, but, you know, I'm going through a hard time right now, this person says. Mm -hmm. and. You know, I hear those as words, but I don't feel it. I don't really feel that kind of trust. I don't feel the trust. I want to, but I'm not there.
1: Mm. Well, I would pray for that person that they could realize how much time they're wasting in trying to solve everything themselves. Because even if you're not feeling that, then you're doing it alone and that's a pretty hard place to be not that we don't have to get to know ourselves and our heart but but without that level of trust or not that level without some level of trust then there's not even a level of hope and and hope is is a pretty powerful support system if you can't trust at least try and at least try to find the hope but more and more, we have to realize we're, not in, we're all in this together. <laughs> we're, you know, you're not alone in it. And the harder the lesson, the more we tend to isolate ourselves and think we have to do it on our own. Whereas they're the times when we actually have to allow others to step up and realize what they're capable of by asking for their help.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Bronnie, you've written a new book called Bloom, A Tale of Courage, Surrender, and Breaking Through Upper Limits. And in this conversation, we've talked quite a bit about courage and you've brought up surrender uh, a couple of times in powerful ways and especially here in talking about the process that you've been through with rheumatoid arthritis. Tell me a little bit about this idea of breaking through upper limits and how this became an important teaching for you.
1: Well, I realised that just as there's a place we can get to in the depth of pain and despair where we say, I am really at the bottom here. I, I cannot take another ounce of pain, and then actually, usually life gives us a little bit more till we get, and there's usually a couple more layers down, and then we can get to the absolute bottom where we, we're broken, where we just our old self has has shattered, and you know we're, we're having to to be reborn from that place, and where we do reach the absolute depth, where we say that's it, I, I am so broken, I cannot take one more ounce of pain and that is a turning point. The same works the other way. As we learn to open our heart and receive life's blessings, we also, it's like there's a, a cloud above us and, um, and we get to a certain level of goodness where we're allowing opportunity in, we're allowing more love, we're allowing more joy into our life And then we hit an upper limit where we genuinely don't know how to allow more joy in or more goodness or more blessings. And so we can often sabotage ourselves, whether consciously or not. We can rock the boat in a relationship or we can um, quit a job that's starting to just starting to break through to the good points or do things that that are just our old self patterns because we really have reached that place where you think, I don't know, I don't know how, and, and it's not conscious, of course, we can never do that consciously to ourselves, but a part of us is thinking, I don't know how to let more goodness in. And so what I find when I've reached those places, I have started recognizing the, the, the sabotage, And when the old self comes back and wants to sabotage me in some way, then I just think, no, no, no. (laughs) Okay, I'm not ready for the next step, but I am not going back down there. And so that's when I just really stay committed to leaving space in my life and do something that brings me joy that is simple and manageable, like going for a bike ride beside the river or doing something that brings me joy but is not a scary Gift of joy, something that's familiar, and and I just keep staying committed to that level of joy until all of a sudden I I sort of realize, okay, righto, life, I'm I'm ready for the next level. Let's <laughs> let's get on with this, and then sure enough, before long, something I take another step up into some unknown area that leads to further joy.
0: Can you give me an example once again of you saying, "Aha, this is an upper limit issue. I can see it."
1: Yeah, um, okay. Well a recent one is um so so one of the biggest fights I've I've had in my, in myself, in my career or in my whole life, is in being seen. Um, because I got used to just finding peace in being in the background, in, in growing up. And then life called me to this public role and I hated it. I, I really resisted it so much and It started off with I wrote a a book and um, with some quotes with nature photos and that was how my creative journey started and that was safe. I just sell my photos at markets. I didn't have my my name on the back on back of the photos, my surname. I you know I was covering my tracks the whole way. But then the songwriting came in and I had to stand on a stage to share my message because I couldn't find anyone else to do that and I hated it. I uh, there was not one gig in the early days that I looked forward to. I drove to every gig with dread because I didn't want to be on stage, but I wanted to share my message. And I just kept, so I'd come up against these limits and I just th- think, no, I'm going to break through this because I know how good it will feel to be heard and to have my message, you know, help people. And so I kept going through that. And over time, the the performance started bringing me joy because I started finding the right audience but also because I let go of those uh, those limits that were restricting me from actually enjoying it and then that led to me speaking on stage when I speak on stage now I don't even I don't think about it I don't plan it I just say to god okay let me allow me to say what this audience needs to hear and so sometimes I can come off a stage and I could think, oh, I could have said that and that and that. That would have made me feel more clever. But I don't do that now. I just say to life, work through me, say what this audience needs to hear. And I've got the confidence to do that. But I wouldn't have if I hadn't kept breaking through the upper limits of what performing was trying to, to bless me with. And so even recently, you know, I haven't done many videos at all um, at all, <laughs> um, online, on YouTube. There's some of me doing interviews and whatnot. But generally, I've avoided uh, video completely because I just don't like it. It's not my my medium. And And so recently, I launched a membership community and I needed people to get to know me and to trust me more by getting to know me. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to do videos and I'm going to let them really see who I am at my best. And so I just made it so fun, Tammy. I just, instead of sitting there thinking, I've got to say this and I've got to say that and get all the copy right, you know, all the copy correct, and I just thought, I'm going to let go of all that nonsense. I'm just going to sit and chat to these people and let them get to know me. And so I put videos on my social media and, um, and let people get to know me. And it was a real upper limit for me. Not that I'm scared of people um, seeing me. I mean, my face is in plenty of places, but but more, it just wasn't my thing. It didn't bring me joy. And so in the end, I thought, okay, people need to get to know me better. I'm going to do some videos and allow the world to see me better, see me more clearly. And that's what I did. And it was fun. So I think that that is probably the most recent upper mm-hmm. limit that I've worked through. In, mm-hmm. it's, it's the example that came
0: up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's possible we could put our whole conversation under this umbrella term that you use, uh, regret-free living. And when I think about that term, regret-free living, I imagine somebody who feels guilt about something or other. You know, in that situation... I lied. And maybe I lied for so many years I don't even want to go back and correct it. Or, you know, I have this guilt about something else. You know, I allowed myself to not take care of my body well or whatever. What would you say to that person who says, you know, I've heard this whole talk, but I'm still perplexed by these things I feel guilty about that I'm holding on
1: to? Mm -hmm. Well, it's human to make mistakes and we have all been there and we can all look back on how we'd have done it differently if we had the wisdom of who we are now, but we didn't. We were who we were then. And so what I say is rather than feel guilty and judge yourself so harshly, because that's all regrets are, a really harsh judgment of ourselves. They're, you know, We all make mistakes, but regrets the only thing that turns a mistake into a regret is that harsh judgment of ourselves. So rather than judge yourself so harshly and you know, have guilt and, or any other toxic emotion that isn't empowering you now, bring compassion to your old self because if you can recognize that what you did wasn't ideal, was not ideal, then you've already evolved from being that person to who you are now. But from who you are now to the person you were, bring love and compassion to that person and say, okay, you messed up, but you did the best as who you were at that time. I, You've since grown into who I am now. I am going to love you with all of your frailties, mistakes, vulnerabilities and everything else because that's who you were then. And I'm going to love you anyway. I'm not going to judge you anymore. I am not going to dump this guilt and regret on you. You you messed up. You've learned from it. I'm going to hold you tightly and lovingly in my heart and move forward with you. Beautiful.
0: All right, Bronnie, I just have one final question for you. This Sounds True show is called Insights at the Edge. And I'm curious what your edge is, especially in terms of this theme of courage. If you had all the courage in the world, is there something you might be doing or approach or be different about than you are? If if we just said, here you go, unlimited courage. Does anything occur to you? I know it's a kind of edgy question, but that's why, you know, here it is at the end of our conversation, Insights at the Edge.
1: You well, know, like, I guess, you know, relationships are my, um, are one of my big lessons. And so if I had all the courage in the world, I would be the most open book of unconditional love for a partner. Yeah. That, that would be tipping me over the edge. Um, yeah, tipping me over, over the edge. I just had this vision of a cliff going over the edge, but, um, but I once said to to a friend, I feel like I'm um, I'm for, I've jumped off a cliff and I've caught a little branch on the way down and the bridge is and the, the branch is about to break and he said to me, well why would you jump off why why not just fly off the cliff, you know and it's, and so when you're saying go off the edge, that level of courage to be as hugely, unconditionally open with a partner has the potential to um, set me flying. And that's that's the edge I'd like to go from.
0: Bronnie, I have so enjoyed talking with you. I'm here in Boulder, Colorado. You're in what part of Australia as we're talking?
1: Um, in northern New South Wales between Byron Bay and the Gold Coast.
0: Uh-huh, beautiful place. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much it's for being a guest. my Really enjoyed talking to you. Great work. Bronnie Ware is the author of the book The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, A Life Transformed by the Dearly Departing, and a new book called Bloom, A Tale of Courage, Surrender, and Breaking Through Upper Limits. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.